Welcome to the Home of Medicine podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm a consultant in acute and general medicine working in the West Midlands. And today I am very excited and delighted to be joined by... Hi everyone, my name is Nicola Cooper. I'm a consultant in acute medicine and I'm based in Derby. I'm also a clinical associate professor in medical education uh, with a specific interest in clinical reasoning and how people learn. Thank you so much for joining me. Honestly, it's an absolute honour. So I'm just going to tell the listeners a little story about really, I guess, what got me into clinical reasoning and even making this podcast. So way back when we were trying to figure it out, but I think it was 2015, 2016. I was at a general internal medicine training day in the West Midlands and Nicola was there and she did a session on clinical reasoning. And I genuinely believe it changed the course of my career because up until that point, I didn't really know what clinical reasoning was. And it was like a penny had dropped. And I was like, oh, my word, this is what medicine's all about. And from that day onwards, clinical reasoning has become a massive part of my day to day discussions. People at work, I'm sure, are fed up of me talking about it. And a couple of years after this teaching session, I made quite a big medical error. And one of the things that helped me, I guess, assimilate where I'd gone wrong and move forward was this original lecture, Clinical Reasoning and Cognitive Bias. So a massive thank you for that. And um, I guess we'll start with the case. Thank you. And that's a really amazing story as well, (laughs) which I didn't know until today. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm going to start with the case. And the way that this is going to work today for the listeners is... I really want to figure out what's going on in Nicola's brain when she sees a patient, because I think we can all learn a huge amount. So I'm going to set the scene. This was yesterday. So I did quite a busy day at work yesterday. It was a 12 hour shift. And I picked up some notes of a 68 year old male. Now, he'd already been seen by the medical registrar. So he was a post-hate wardrobe patient for me. And I read the notes and the history was quite brief. It said suprapubic pain, known to have prostate cancer with metastases to the bone. He denied any urinary symptoms. There was no dyshoria, no frequency, no urgency. But because of the suprapubic pain, he'd been started on intravenous antibiotics and coamoxiclav. The diagnosis was urinary tract infection, most likely urinary sepsis, plan for intravenous antibiotics, coamoxiclav, and for post-hate ward round review. So, first of all, what, what's going on in your head when you're when you're looking at notes like that? I so you know, this is really interesting because um, you know, there are some consultant colleagues who, if a patient's already been seen by the med reg, they'll just kind of move on um because you know what we do is cognitively very difficult actually and if if someone's already been seen by a you know good enough person then let's just uh rubber stamp it and move on to the next case who cares right um but actually um and this is quite fascinating because we all vary in our tendency to be skeptical <laughs> <laughs> there's 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 a, a a fantastic body of work by a psychologist called stanovich and his colleagues that are based in canada and they research rationality 
I've been reading a lot about their work because uh, that informed a lot of the second edition, actually, of the ABC of clinical reasoning. And um, I'm interested in individual variation in particular, uh, why people with the same level of education and qualifications vary so much in their performance and decision making. We see that among med regs and consultants, for example, don't we? And um, it's really fascinating in, in psychology. Once you've accounted for knowledge, IQ, so once you've accounted for that, the reason why people vary so, so much in their individual performance on reasoning tasks is their cognitive style. And that is your tendency to think about your own thinking, um, to be aware of context, to look things up, look for evidence, you know, um, seek advice, that type of thing. So um, so I'm aware when I'm answering this question, I'm answering it as me <laughs> because I have a particular cognitive style. I'm, I'm, I'm very sceptical and, you know, um, reflective and likely to look things up and, and all that kind of thing. So... You know, I can just see me reading this clarkin and just kind of my steam starting to come out, out of my ears for a few reasons. So the the first thing is, um, you know, just because you've been seen by a med reg doesn't mean that it's correct. Uh, and things are particularly sticky when a consultant has already seen the patient, isn't it? That makes it even worse. Also, probably you're doing a morning ward round, right? Um, and of course, the med reg has been operating under night brain what I call night brain. Mm. And actually, uh, there was a beautiful, uh, a nice little letter published in Nature in 1997. Uh, I can't remember the author, but it, they basically, it was a funny experiment. They showed that your performance at 4am, if you've not slept, 50% of people don't sleep before the first night shift. And if you've not slept before that first night shift, by 4am, your performance is equivalent to 100 milligrams of alcohol in your blood. So you're basically a drunk driver. Yeah. Drunk, drunk senior review. Um, it was a study in Australia with Obsengine registrars. Half of them they fed alcohol to every so often, and the other half they did the night shift and uh, they did, you know, cognitive tests on them and reaction times and whatnot. So, so I'm looking at this thinking, okay, night brain. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a naturally skeptical person, and there's some things that don't add up at all here. So he's, he's got no urinary symptoms at all, but he's got the suprapubic pain. He's got prostate cancer with bone mets. Uh, he's on IV antibiotics. I'd be, I'd be looking at the CRP and the white cell count. Mm -hmm. And um, and then, of course, this terrible phrase, urinary sepsis, which is is banned if I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> because I, yeah. And I spend ages trying to explain what is sepsis and what is not sepsis. Mm. Um, but things that are going through my mind, I think it's really important um, to, to think who is my patient. Yeah. And in fact, Manchester Medical School have, have got a lovely clinical reasoning tool they use with their students. And the first step is who's my patient? Humans are very bad at estimating probability. We we really anchor on the story. We have what's called story bias. Actually, the news journalists use that all the time, don't they? They don't tell us stats. They, they get an individual to tell a story. Mm -hmm. So we're very prone to story bias and we're very bad at probability. And actually, to be more accurate in thinking about what the diagnosis could be, we're really meant to anchor on who is my patient and then adjust for the story. But we actually do it the other way around. So if we try that with this case, who is my patient? So we've got a, a guy with prostate cancer yeah, and bone mets, okay? Mm -hmm. And he's come with suprapubic pain. Now, 
I, I need to think, okay, so what, what could be the causes of suprapubic pain in a guy with prostate cancer? So the first thing's going through my mind is, okay, is he in retention? Mm-hmm. And remember, you can be in retention and still pee small amounts. People forget that. Mm-hmm. So I would be going with a goal in mind. And I always try and tell my registrars, when you've read the notes, you need to go with some goals that you're going to see. And actually, they find this really difficult. And I think it's maybe because their knowledge might be a problem. But I'm going now to see this patient with some goals in mind, which is uh, along the lines of, you know, for now, I don't believe he has an infection until I've seen evidence of raised inflammatory markers and whatnot. And I'm going to either scan his bladder or palpate his bladder to see if he's in retention. Mm-hmm. So just on the info you give me, these are the kind of things I'm sort of thinking about, really. But I'm, I'm sceptical and I want to go and find out for myself. Okay. I want to know the story because it seems to be a bit scanty, this history, isn't it? There yeah. must be, why would you come to hospital with superpubic pain for starters? Yeah. Uh, and there's, there's some missing info here. There's loads of missing. Yeah, absolutely. And you're absolutely right about the night brain. When you're taking that history in the middle of the night, it's very different to that morning brain, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm also very sceptical. And I, I think that stems from a medical error that I made quite a few years ago where I basically anchored onto the first piece of information I was given from previous doctors, paramedics, GP, and the bias of diagnostic momentum, the diagnosis had been made and I couldn't question it and I messed up. And ever since then, I think I've become the slowest post-hate ward round consultant in acute medicine because I always have to go back to the beginning. Um, Not because I don't trust other people, but because I don't want to be in that situation again where I made such a big medical error that resulted in me having to take time off work and really question, was I in the right job? So now I really am <laughs> very slow or thorough, I like to say, maybe. You know what, Amy, that's really interesting because there's there's research that shows that um, experts spend longer representing mm. the problem than learners do. So people may notice, you know, our listeners may notice that um, the consultants can be a bit annoying sometimes, right? Because <laughs> as you're trying to present the case. But they're like flicking through and sort of ignoring what you're saying. And they're really interested in why the patient is here in the first place. Yes. They're kind of ignoring things. They want to know where the ambulance sheet is. Can I, I see the ambulance sheet? <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the poor old junior doctor's trying to present the case from their notes. And you're like, where's the ambulance sheet? Where's the GP? You know? and, <laughs> and that's, you know, have you phoned the care home? That type of thing. And that's actually because, um, and this is in lots of different domains, experts spend longer representing the problem. So that's how that so problem representation is a whole thing. So you see, clinical reasoning involves memory, um, which is of course knowledge, memory, decision making, problem solving, and there's a whole branch of psychology uh, to do with problem solving. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, um, but experts spend longer really figuring out what the problem is, and then they solve it dead quickly. Whereas learners or novices will will actually gloss over the problem representation stage and then proceed to solve the problem more slowly, but make many errors and often have to go back to the beginning again. So actually getting to the bottom of why this person is really here today is Mm. a function of actually what experts tend to do anyway. And there's there's a lovely article, um, and I can't remember um, the author again, but it's in a a MedEd journal, but it's it's, it's, it's something along the lines of a new model of expertise uh, slowing down when you should. And it's, and what's interesting from the clinical reasoning literature is that there is no one way of thinking and decision making that's better than another. 
as you know, sometimes we'll just make a spot diagnosis. Sometimes we'll just know. Sometimes we have to go back to first principles and think it through. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we just have to triage because we've got a, a massive humanity that we have to fix in priority. You know, mm-hmm. so there's no one way of thinking in decision making that's better than another. But what experts are good at is slowing down when they should and just being good enough when a good enough response is all that's needed mm-hmm. for that particular situation. And it takes a while to learn how to change your gear in that way. Mm-hmm. Some people find it easier than others. But, um, yeah, so when you say that, you know, I think uh, that that's, you know, some of what's going on. Mm. One of the questions that I always like to ask a patient as well is, first of all, why did you come to hospital? But also, why did you come to hospital today and not yesterday? If you've had the problem for three weeks, for example. So in acute medicine, we get a lot of patients who may have had a headache for six weeks, may have had a suprapubic discomfort for four days. But what is it about today at nine o'clock that made you go, I'm going to go to hospital today? I think that's that's such a useful question because the question is either, oh, my wife nagged me and I gave in. (laughs) Or it's this bombshell like, oh, well, it was because I collapsed. And you're like, what? (laughs) Because that's not anywhere. Yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So I'll tell you a little bit more information. So um, when I reviewed the patient's notes, I, again, like you, I was a bit sceptical. Um, and I looked at his um, blood tests um, with the doctor I was on with on my day. And we noticed that his white cell count was 17.61. So pretty high. His neutrophil count was 16.55. His CRP was 41. So consistent with an inflammatory process, whether that be an infective inflammatory process or a non-infective, we're not sure at the moment, but I was thinking, okay, could this be a UTI potentially? Mm. So I then looked at his kidney function and it was normal. So that was reassuring, sort of could still be in retention, but there was sort of in, I guess there would be no hydronephrosis with a normal kidney function. So that was reassuring. And interestingly, I don't know whether this is a good thing to do or not to look at the bloods before you go and see a patient, because I know there's a debate about that as well, whether that skews your decision making process. But I looked at his liver function tests and his alkaline phosphatase was 360. So the range in our hospital is 30 to 130. So that's pretty high. His ALT was 157 and the range was 10 to 49. And his bilirubin was 82. And again, in our hospital, the normal range is less than 21. So I was like, whoa, okay. So on further reading of the nighttime notes, it's documented that abnormal liver function tests, most likely sepsis-induced hypotension ischemia of the liver. (laughs) Okay, that could happen. Um, But it got me thinking, could there be something else going on here? So I went and spoke to the patient. And I went in to see him and he had three family members present and they said, should I leave? And I was like, no, I always find having family members, they're really helpful. Um, not in all situations, but mostly. So I started to ask him questions and he said he'd got some generalized abdominal pain. So it wasn't necessarily suprapubic, but he was just sort of waving his hands all over. No radiation of pain. He said that he hadn't had a poo for four days. And he felt constipated and then he'd actually been vomiting. And the day before admission, he'd vomited four times, but was no longer feeling nauseated. His daughter said that he'd been having hot and cold sweats. 
Because I asked the patient, have you had any fevers, been feeling hot? And he said, no, nothing like that. And his daughter was like, yes, you have, Dad. You've been hot and cold. Last night you said you couldn't sleep because you were so sweaty and hot in bed. He then said he hadn't had much of an appetite for a few days. And then his family then said, oh, actually, it might be a bit longer than a few days. It could be a few weeks. He just said he didn't feel like eating. So any thoughts now? Mm. So it's interesting, that, isn't it? I mean, you know, um, clinical reasoning is is highly dependent on knowledge. Mm. Uh, we know that. But actually, it's really important to understand that by knowledge, we don't just mean facts. Yeah. Um, because you can know a lot of facts and not understand <laughs> how facts and ideas fit together conceptually. And uh, and also you need to knowledge includes how to go about things and also, you know, those kind of things as well. So so just I'm saying that as a comment about this shock liver business, because that's uh, I think that's a load of rubbish. And the reason why is that's um, usually associated with, you know, um, usually the ALT, I think, in the thousands, you know, like over four thousand or something like that. And, you know, a proper episode of proper hypertension and proper sick patient, you know, like an ICU type patient, not this patient that we're talking about. So I think that's a, a weird thing to. Well, it's not a weird thing to write. It's a normal learning behavior, isn't it? It's a mistake. <laughs> it's wrong. <laughs> and um, but, you know, so and it's interesting. So he's got he's got generalized abdominal. So now what I'm thinking is I'm thinking, what's his calcium? Because mm-hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, abdominal pain and vomiting and um, constipation. And he's mm-hmm. got bone mets, yeah? Yeah. Um, but then clearly there's there's some, you know, probably some infection going on because I don't think just having cancer would normally, I mean, it can do, but we can look back at his old results, but probably, hopefully, if we looked back, he's got some new, a new neutrophilia and a raised CRP. Mm-hmm. Um, now, of course, cancer patients can have cancer things, but they also get normal things. And if he was a normal guy, we'd think, as he got, you know, cholangitis or you know biliary infection basically wouldn't we yeah um so these are the kind of things really and I'd be thinking okay well well you know and of course in medicine when things are a bit vague we go where the money is don't we absolutely we just need to ultrasound his liver and maybe take some blood cultures so that's sort of what would be going through my mind and what you said about family is so important as well is that sometimes they appear just at the right moment Mm. and um and you do get the 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 the, the best answers because they observe things that the patient might not clock themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So I absolutely went down the same route of thinking that this must be biliary because of the abnormal um, liver function tests, the raised white cell count, generalized abdominal pain. So I thought this must be biliary infection. So I started to ask him about um, do you get I started to lead him. Uh, which I shouldn't have done. So I said to him, when you eat some fatty food, like a cream cake or a chip butty, and he was like, well, I don't eat any of those things. And I was like, okay, so if you eat something fatty, do you get indigestion? Do you get abdominal pain? Does it make it worse? And he said, I don't eat any fatty food. In fact, I've lost quite a lot of weight over the last few months. And the family chipped in and said, yes, he has lost quite a lot of weight, actually. Couldn't quantify, but his clothes were quite baggy. And I said to him, so why do you think you're losing weight? Why aren't you eating? And he was just like, I just don't feel like eating. So I was like, it must be a gallstone. I was like, do you get any indigestion? I asked him again, you know, anything at all. Do you get any funny taste in your mouth when you've eaten? And he was like, no. 
it's like, what, what on earth is going on? So I could really feel myself trying to lead him down that because I was like, what on earth else could be going on here? That's the, the interesting thing, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to hone in on what you think the problem might be by exploring it. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, you've got to keep an open mind about mm-hmm. all the other things it could be. So, for example, if he didn't have prostate cancer, we'd think this guy had cancer as well, wouldn't we? Exactly. We'd be thinking yes. about a pancreatic cancer or some kind of a PGI cancer, which presents with all of these symptoms, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, especially the way exams are written, <laughs> the way exams, MRCP, everyone's only really got one thing wrong with them, don't they? But that's not mm-hmm. real. Isn't it? I remember um, seeing a, a third year medical student get really confused because she went to see a patient with both right heart failure um no with 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 lvf i think LVF, but also had a bowel obstruction mm. and it really confused her because she wasn't expecting a resonant abdomen you know she was expecting ascites and and when i said do you think the patient might have more than one thing wrong with them the the, the look of confusion mm. <laughs> um so yes we can be mrcp'd into thinking about this case yeah <laughs> you know, do you know what me. that's <laughs> what i did i think so I don't know how many patients I'd already seen in the day, but I I um I went down that route of he can't have two cancers because that'd be, be really unlucky. And I sort of got I sometimes get myself thinking that, well, I don't want him to have that because that's really rubbish. So mm. it can't be. And I know that sounds crazy, but then you start to think, well, I, I don't want to diagnose that because that's not very nice for the patient or the family. And obviously I check in on myself and go come on Amy be reasonable that's not the right way to think but I did to be honest pancreatic cancer did not even enter my head Mm. I was convinced this must be biliary infection because of the abnormal white cell count the CRP and the abnormal liver function tests and I examined him and I his pulse was completely normal 80 beats per minute he had a normal blood pressure he looked jaundiced and I said to him, do you think your skin's changed? Well, he said, no. But all his family had commented that he had. I examined his heart. It was normal. Chest was clear. When I palpated his abdomen, I didn't feel anything. It was nice and soft, non-tender, bowel sounds present. There was no tenderness in the right upper quadrant, suggestive of cholangitis. There was, you know, it was a completely normal abdomen. I examined his legs and there was a very small amount of edema, calves were nice and soft and non-tender so I sat down and very confidently said so there could be a couple of things going on here I'm not entirely sure what it is yet we need to do some more tests however I'm not convinced this is a water infection how but I think you may have a gallbladder infection you may have had a gallstone that's got infected and his daughter went well that's strange he had his gallbladder taken out in 2017 and I was like oh no Okay. I mean, that's that's just really interesting. <laughs> There's a few things there that are just really fascinating. The first thing is, I don't think we're very good at teaching evidence-based physical exam. Mm-hmm. I mean, just just because I think... Um, you know, there's a, there's a there's a guy called Eric Holmbo who works for the American College of Physicians, I think, and he writes about the fact that that there are well documented deficiencies in uh, trainees' physical exam skills. I think for new doctors they will miss one in four important findings or invent one in four important findings. 
will change the diagnosis. So he talks about how important it is for us to watch people, you know, and uh, observe our trainees and stuff. Um, but um, but we although we teach physical exam, we we don't really teach what I call evidence based physical exam. So that's how good things are when you find them. Mm-hmm. And so so trainees and often consultants will will have this idea, um, you know, for example, that if everything, you know, maybe I'm just giving an example let's say we've got a query PE or something, you know, the amount of times people come up to me and say, well, I thought about PE, but the SATs are normal and she had no chest pain. So that's a classic of you don't actually know how PE presents. And and that's partly because the way it's presented in textbooks and the way it's presented in our postgrad exams, it's all prototypes. It's not how people present in the 21st century. So, you know, you're talking about his normal physical exam. To me, when you were saying that, I was thinking to myself what I would do. I would discount the normal physical exam as irrelevant because actually we've got this history. And I think that's so key sometimes. I mean, you know, even with the explosion of medical technology in the last 30 years, history is, at least in medical outpatient settings, the studies are, it's still the the majority, you know, over 70% of how we make a diagnosis. The your hypothesis testing in physical exam, aren't you? Um, but we've still got this incredibly valuable history. And so I would say that, you know, that physical exam's added nothing. It's not taken away or added anything. Um, mm. Whereas I know that some learners will put great weight on the normal physical exam, you know, inappropriately, for example. And, and then the other thing he said about his gallbladder being removed. And I remember I was a gastro reg for a year as part of my gen med going back years. And uh, I didn't know you can get gallstones after mm. you had a cystectomy. I remember my consult. This is when it dawned on me. Mm. Uh, I was ex- I was presenting a case to my consultant, and he was trying to explain you can still get gallstones mm. after you had a cystectomy. And I just looked at him and I said, "But where does the bile come from?" Yeah. <laughs> and he just looked at me with a deadpan face, and he went, "The liver." <laughs> I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten my first year, second year medical school, but. Anyway. Yeah. But yes, I've seen consultants say, oh, you can't have gallstones, you've had your gallbladder removed. That's what the daughter was saying, wasn't it? In yeah, fact, absolutely. not true. Yeah. Yeah. So I had this similar conversation yesterday with um, the family and the trainee yeah. I was with and said, well, actually, you can still get gallstones, even if the gallbladder has been removed. Um, but I did feel like a bit of a wally, to be honest. Um, I was really confident about this diagnosis. And then I really then started to second guess, third guess, you know, fourth guess, my diagnosis. So I said, oh, just give me a minute, left the bedside and said, I'll be back. And then just checked the operation notes. And I really, I wanted to go back and have a look what operation it had done. Um, You know, what had they found, you know, anything like that, just to be entirely sure what I was going to talk about. So um, yes, he had had his gallbladder removed in 2017. There'd be no complications. So actually, yes, you're right, could potentially still have a gallstone. So, however, by now, the diagnosis of pancreatic malignancy came into my mind mm-hmm. because I was I, I went, Do you know what? I'm just going to ignore the previous diagnosis of the prostatic cancer and go, OK, so now we've got this gentleman who's got an obstructive picture on his liver function tests. So. We're still on paper and pen at work. So I write a problem list and I wrote in it obstructive jaundice and I do like little spider diagrams in the notes. And I like a line off that was pancreatic malignancy. Another line was gallstones. Um, And then I thought, okay, could it be hepatic jaundice? So a little few causes there, you know, could this be EBV? Could it be CMV? Potentially, 
but you know these are all sort of things that were going through my head so then I had to completely change my plan then when I went back to see the patient again and I, actually do you know what you've said there has just reminded me of something that's really powerful and we don't talk about it and that's problem representation uh we've, we've done a whole chapter on this um in the second edition uh, of the ABC of clinical reasoning, because um, it's just so incredible. So problem representation is a thing in medicine, but we don't talk about it. And it's basically probably sometimes it might be best summed up as the impression, but it's, it's not a, a summary and it's not the PC or the HPC again. It's an absolutely stripped down key features of the case but the language you use really matters. And this is really, really, this is the fascinating part because whether you're a student or an expert, if you represent the problem using very precise medical language and you use what's called semantic qualifiers, so these are these binary descriptors we use in medicine, poly, mono, uh, unilateral, bilateral, progressive, intermittent, acute, chronic, or So you use precise language, you use these descriptors, or you just put things together in a syndrome, if that's relevant. If you use this precise language, your diagnostic performance is is really high compared to, check this out in studies, near zero for people who just kind of waffle. And this is absolutely fascinating to me because language and memory are really heavily intertwined. And by translating the patient's own words and the data that you gathered from the patient and the relatives and the bloods and all that, by translating all of that into this precise medical language, that's how we're matching the patient's data with illness scripts and our long-term memory. So I'll give you a, a really cool example. If you've got some medical students and you've just seen been to see a patient with chest pain and the patient summarized the problem as chest pain, When you say to the students, what do you think it might be? I bet you 100% of the time, the first thing that will come out of their mouth is ACS, heart attack or angina. Because whenever you say chest pain to students, they say heart attack. Yeah. But the patient you've just been to see, you know, was a 30 year old woman with left side, an acute 24 hour history of left sided pleuritic chest pain and breathlessness. If you get the students to represent the problem like that, they would never say heart attack or ACA. They'll come up with really sensible things like PE and pneumonia and all that. And that's because they have the knowledge. It's just that they're not able to access the knowledge that's already in long-term memory because of the way they're representing the problem. So it only works when the case is complex. It doesn't work when it's a dead straightforward case. But when the case is complex, doing a problem representation before coming up with diagnoses is so powerful. And if we were to represent the problem here, because it's usually who is my patient followed Mm. by relevant past history and then the stripped key features of the case. So if we did the problem representation, we're going to have something like 68-year-old man with a past medical history of metastatic prostate cancer with, you know, an X-week history of anorexia, weight loss, nausea and vomiting and new obstructive LFTs. We're probably going to say something like that, aren't we? And that immediately gets your brain thinking about all the things you know that could be. Mm-hmm. So the time course, you know, and all those symptoms lumped together makes you start thinking maybe less infection and more cancer mm-hmm. because you have that illness script in your long-term memory already mm-hmm. about how pancreatic cancer presents, you know, for example. And it makes you think about it. Whereas if you just take the history and examine the patient, look at the test and then start thinking about diagnoses, mm-hmm. it, it it's... um you can just end up, you know, missing some things that you already know about. 
But that problem representation is dead helpful when the case is a bit complex. Yeah. And I think that's something we really need to teach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we don't seem to. We just teach his, we just teach history exam. What's your diagnosis? Don't we? Give us your differential diagnosis. So yeah. Yeah. And that I mean, when you detailed that problem representation then, the first thing that came to mind was this is pancreatic carcinoma. Um, however, when I first saw the notes and I took the history and I'd looked at everything, I couldn't for some reason it wasn't entering my head until I allowed it to, I guess. Um, mm. And then I really questioned it. And um, sometimes it's about taking a step back from the patient when I was examining him. And I looked at him through different eyes and I didn't look at him through the water infection eyes or the, you know, the biliary infection. I looked at him and went, actually, he's jaundice. He looks frail. He looks a little bit cachectic. I can see his cheekbones. He looked like somebody who could potentially have a malignancy. Mm. And I just completely changed the way that I was viewing the made more complex by the fact that he already has a malignancy. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. 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 And that was what was throwing me. And is it Hickam's dictum? Patients can have as many diseases as they damn well please. And I think we often do that. You know, you're like, we've got one, one's enough. You know, it's really unfortunate to have two and three would be really unlucky. Um, So actually, after I'd seen him and had a conversation with the family, I said, this could be infection because he's still got the raised white cell count. He's still got the neutrophilia and the CRP. So yes, we do need to look, do an ultrasound off the liver and the remaining gallbladder or the biliary tree, whatever's left of it. But actually, I also want to do a CT scan because I actually want to look at, is there something else like a malignancy going on here that I can't miss? Mm. I don't know. We have, I mean, this was yesterday. We haven't, we'd requested the scan, but it wasn't done. So, I mean, obviously we'll be waiting for the report on that. Um, but it was a really interesting case on how I went from one thing to something completely different. Mm. And it's fascinating as well how the um, the registrar um, had sort of um, come up with shock liver and neurosepsis and all that. And, and mm. actually this, this is... Um, this really reminds me of um, uh, this. There's this. There's this thing in education. I've been reading about it recently, called the cognitive apprenticeship. Mm. And of course, um, we really don't set up our education systems to enhance clinical reasoning education, do we? Because it's so difficult now to get feedback. I mean, I know a lot of us will will have that hour where the night team can go around with the weird cases that they've seen, but you know, very often. By the time you've done a handover and the night team look, you know, knackered, <laughs> off they go. And, you know, of course, our ward round takes all morning, doesn't it? And um, and trainees, uh, depending on your IT system and also the motivation and the curiosity and the cognitive style of the trainee, they won't be tracking patient outcomes themselves. We need to be build feedback into the education system, into our IT systems and into our education system uh, in a way that's sort of feasible. Uh, because actually, cognitive apprenticeship is where we kind of make our own thinking transparent um but also we correct you know knowledge gaps so we'll talk about you know actually how does a shock liver present because it's what i find is that a lot of our junior doctors they've read about stuff but they've never seen it which probably explains why there's so many cases of encephalitis around which is not encephalitis um don't know if you have this problem but um i remember going to see a patient and i and um, it was a, it was a mysterious case the night team had seen and so we went to A&E to see this patient and, and I just said, this is not encephalitis. You know, we need to stop all of this, but he's probably got a demyelinating condition. 
you know, like this weird thing, AEDEM, you know, this acute demyelinating um, cephalo, whatever it's called, uh, which is what he turned out to have. And then we were walking back and I said, and I just said, have you ever seen in, infectious encephalitis? And, and, and the SHO said, no. And I said, well, that's the thing you see, you don't have an illness script for it. You don't know what it looks like. And illness scripts are very important. We, we know that... Um, so an illness script is that tightly compiled knowledge and long-term memory that's a mixture of your formal study and all the cases you've seen. Uh, they're often incomplete. We're continually adding to them. Um, they may be incorrect, but they're always being refined over time. And we know from the clinical reasoning literature is that experts are not experts because they have bigger brains or bigger memories or they're better problem solvers in, in some ways. They, they use different strategies and novices. They don't. But it's the the richness of their illness scripts. The, it's the organisation of their knowledge and long term memory, uh, and that's why it's so important to just see as many cases as possible <laughs> in as many different contexts as possible. That's how people get get good. But with the coaching and the feedback, you see. Mm. So you know, converse, you know, so this registrar would be for that person to then have this conversation about. Well, actually, you've probably never seen a shock liver. Let me tell you how it presents. Mm. And also for us to be understanding about, you know, night shift work. Night shift work is completely different. Family, not there. You're just basically trying to keep people alive. Mm. So we've got to make it as this kind of safe, you know, we're here to learn. Mm. Because, you know, uh, I, I've done nights recently, you know, with the junior doctor strikes. You, you're literally just making sure things are safe. You're not dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And every consultant needs to understand that in the morning when you're at handover. Never criticise the night team. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I've, yeah. I mean, I remember when I was doing nights as a reg and being criticised for not picking up, you know, weird diagnoses. And I'm like, it was three in the morning. The patient was asleep. Um, and yeah. often that's the difficulty as well, is the patient's fast asleep. You don't yeah. want to That's why we go around in the morning again, you know, because, uh, you know, mm. that's when we do the weird and wonderful stuff. Mm. Meanwhile, well, the registrar has been sending people to ICU and resuscitating people and they've all gone by the time we turn up because they've, you know, exactly. been picking up. Yeah, they're the ones fighting the fires, aren't they, in recess all night? Yeah. What I you what you mentioned, and I think it's really important, but I've noticed that not many people do it, is I follow all of the patients I see. Mm. So every patient I saw yesterday, I have a list at work, I have all of their hospital numbers, and I will follow them all up to identify investigations. Was my diagnosis right? Was it incorrect? Did I do the right thing? Did I do the wrong thing? Because how else am I going to learn? And I mentioned it to a trainee the other day and I said, this is a really good case. I would follow this case up. And they were like, oh, do you do that? And I was like, I do with all of them. Sometimes it might just be a quick review of the troponin was negative. It wasn't ACS or it could be something more complex. So for example, this individual, I will follow up on that CT. I will identify what was going on in that pancreas and the cause of those abnormal liver function tests. So I think that's something we need to teach is the importance of following up on the patients and the cases we see. Yes, and this is where hospital IT is important as well. We yes. used to have an IT system where we could add to our list, and now yeah. we have an IT system where we can't. Mm. Um, and so that actually is quite important. There's a there's a really nice paper published in uh, the Journal of Graduate Medical Education, and it's called uh, it's by Murphy et al. It's called an inquiry into the early careers of master clinicians. I came across this paper uh, a couple of years ago. When was it published? 2018. And what they did was they they looked at 17 members. Um, this is in the US that apparently 
um, in this particular university, they have this, um, the Department of Medicine has a council of master clinicians. So I guess what they do is they kind of recognize the people who are meant to be great physicians, basically. What they did was they interviewed them. They basically asked them what they did when they were trainees. And what was absolutely fascinating, they had these four themes. Um, and I always share this with my registrars, actually. Um, the first theme was that they actually had uh, made consistent learning efforts. They read. If you ask your registrars how much they read. <laughs> they read, they taught, and they followed up their patient outcomes. So that's absolutely fascinating. The second theme was really interesting. They they sought to cultivate their it says they cultivated habits of mind so they were they they were consciously practiced humanism and empathy they um they were they were humble they they thought and reflected over their cases um so i thought that was interesting but another theme was they worked in high volume clinically rich environments which is really interesting uh, another theme was they really worked on their clinical reasoning skills you know like evidence-based history and exam i was talking about before uh, that kind of thing. And uh, I think the last one was uh, they worked in these rich environments. They practiced outside their comfort zone. They they sought out role models. It's a really fascinating paper. I share it with all my registrars. And I say, look, most of us will become experienced non-experts. That's what the literature shows. Uh, in the words of Ericsson, who, who's an expert on experts, many people achieve this state of when they can do things automatically. And I quote, they maintain this mediocre status for the rest of their careers, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> but some of us will become experts. Some of, us, some of us want to become experts. And that involves deliberate practice. It involves effort. Deliberate practice is a theory that Ericsson um, coined. And it involves being out of your comfort zone. It involves effort. It involves work. It involves coaching. And it involves feedback as well. And of course, feedback can happen from what happened next as well as from the teacher and, and all that. So um, I'm, I'm a firm believer that we need to teach people how to learn and teach people how to be good because it doesn't happen automatically. <laughs> and and then the people who want to and who are able to, because it varies at different times of your life, doesn't it, mm -hmm. can, can can take that. But we need to be there to to make sure the feedback and the coaching is in place as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And what's really interesting is I'm thinking back to when I was a registrar, early registrar years, I didn't really know about this sort of stuff. Mm. Um, so, yes, you put the effort in to pass the exams, um, but coaching, feedback, deliberately chasing, you know, following up patients wasn't natural and nobody told me to do it. So it's, you know, that's definitely something I wanted signpost everyone to that paper because it sounds really interesting and I will put the reference to that in the podcast notes actually um really really interesting I think the key thing that I, I do try to get any trainee to do any doctor is to follow up patients because if you don't follow them up how are you ever going to know what you did was right or wrong yeah and and we learn mainly you know through practicing with cases and feedback that, that's how we learn to be good at clinical reasoning practicing with cases and feedback and then reflecting on the cases we've seen. But often you need to reflect with another person because mm. um, especially when you're learning. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So we do try and have case discussions as sort of around the around the table at lunchtime where we do discuss cases. But what we often do, what we probably shouldn't do as much is we discuss the interesting cases. <laughs> you know, and sometimes we should just discuss the patient with abdominal pain, the person mm. who comes with chest pain, because their learning points are just as rich from those cases as yeah. the 
the encephalitis, the autoimmune encephalitis that, you know, everybody seems to have. And I think I've never, I don't think I've ever seen it. So, okay, moving on then. Obviously, clinical reasoning is the key to working as a physician. I think it's yeah one of the most important things, in fact, the most important thing as it's, a physician. It's the point, isn't it? It's the point. It's the point. Exactly. <laughs> and I often say, you know, if you're going to be doing a knee operation, you're taught how to do the knee operation. Mm-hmm. As physicians, we're making diagnoses, we're thinking, but we're not taught how to do it. And yes, explicitly well, taught how to do it. Yes, that's right. It's not explicit. It's not systematic. Mm-hmm. And it's not explicit. Um, and that's partly because we don't. Well, we do now, hopefully, but we never had a language. We never had a shared vocabulary we never had a shared language and one of the things that we're trying to do with um, cream which is the clinical reasoning and med ed group is just give people resources and, and one of the things we talk about is you know just learning about clinical reasoning concepts alone doesn't make you better but it's important because it gives you a shared vocabulary a shared understanding uh, so teachers and learners can talk to each other <laughs> yes um because if you don't know what a problem representation is, or if you don't know what an illness script is, or um, you know whatever, then uh, we can't talk about it and learn from it. So, um, so we're really trying to um, we, we need that common understanding, you know, what clinical reasoning is in a way that helps us as teachers. Because what's really fascinating is to me, you know, all you know GPs, consultants, and especially doctors, you know, people who are not in training. Uh, well, we're we're all learning, aren't we? But you know, mm. those of us who are teachers, let's say, we we all know what clinical reasoning is in inverted commas. Um, but actually, to be able to teach something, you need to be able to break it down. Yeah, and that's the problem. Uh, so my job is to help people break it down. So because a lot of the teaching happens in these really small conversations on the shop floor you know the, like you said micro teaching it's mm. just the little clinical conversations that we have about patients all the time mm-hmm. during the shift and and some of them uh, can just be you know if you're teaching just a little mm. but often people feel like they're really learning it doesn't have to be a big thing but we all need to have that language mm. so I'm I'm back at work tomorrow. Um, I'm going to be working on a medical decisions unit. So high turnover, lots and lots of patients coming through. What can I do to, I guess, teach clinical reasoning to who I'm working with tomorrow? How can I make sure they leave tomorrow shift going? That was really interesting. I learned something today. What key tips can I do on call on the shop floor when it's busy? Well, do you know what? You've asked, uh, that's a big question. I know. <laughs> the podcast. But, uh, what's really fascinating is there are some teaching strategies that are better than others, mm-hmm. uh, proving clinical reasoning ability. And the good news is that the ones that are most effective involve the learner doing most of the work. Mm-hmm. Because teaching is hard work, because, you know, talking all the time is hard when you're trying to also see patients. And yeah. so uh, one of the things that, um, um, I mean, there are lots of different ways, but um I think, well, I don't know where to start with that question, but um, instead of you explaining, just to, I'm just going to give you one example. Yeah. Get the learner to explain. So it's called self-explanation. So when you get someone to talk out loud and explain it to themselves, for the purpose of the purpose of increasing their own understanding, that outperforms explanation by the teacher. So, and it only works when the case is relatively complex, not if it's dead simple, mm-hmm. but if you get the learner 
to explain it out loud to themselves for the purpose of increasing their own understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of you explaining, their learning is better. And there's been meta-analyses on this. Um, this is what you already see, Amy, because it's when the SHO comes up to you and says, can I just discuss a case? Mm-hmm. And then they talk out loud everything about the case. And then they go, oh, it's okay. I know the answer now. Thanks. And they walk off. <laughs> so they're doing <laughs> it. Yeah. So what you can do is you can prompt this by, and I do this in a very simple way. I just say, um, what do you think? Yeah. And I'm not being annoying or deliberately, you know, I'll, I'll just say, uh, what do you think? So they say, oh, I don't know what to do about whether I should do this, that and the other. And I'll say, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And you might expand on that and say, you know, explain it to yourself or, or something. Um, and actually, when they talk it out, they will um, often come up with something really sensible. And then you can either say, yes, that's great. Mm -hmm. Or you could correct a a mistake because there might be. So here's a beautiful example. F1 came up to me and said, I don't know whether to start this. This an 86 year old woman. She's coming with a fall, no chest pain, ECG normal. Someone's done a troponin. (laughs) It's 40. So it's moderately elevated troponin because less than 14 was our cutoff. Um, Shall I start it on treatment for ACS? Yeah. And I said, let's think about what you've just said. Mm -hmm. What do you think? And he said, well, she had no chest pain. Um, Her ECG is normal. She's she's literally come in with a four. I think it was in the garden or something. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think she's had an ACS. And I said, Mm -hmm. I said, yes. Did you know that if you're over 75, 50% of you will have a moderately elevated troponin just because of your age? And he said, I didn't know that. Thank you. And he walked off and that was it. So <laughs> just having, getting the learner to commit is actually really powerful as a teaching strategy instead of just mm-hmm. explaining to them or answering for them. Mm-hmm. As long as you do it in a nice learning way, not in a horrible beat you over the head way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. And then you could, you've also, it also allows you to assess their understanding and correct any mistakes as well. So if I just give one tip, self-explanation is is more powerful than explanation by the teacher Mm -hmm. brilliant and it's something that we can all do at work isn't it and it's not tiring to you (laughs) all the work (laughs) yeah and often when when you do that the the trainee will come up with a diagnosis or something I hadn't even thought about I'm like oh that's a really good thought thank you very much um so then both of you are learning because what I often say to trainees as well is we learn just as much from you as you learn from us Mm -hmm. Um, so every day I go to work I try and learn something new or it might be something new it might just be reminding myself of something I used to know and it's somewhere far back in my consciousness and it's just made me rethink about it and that's really really important thank you so much that was absolutely fascinating I always make notes on podcasts and I've made one two I made nine pages of notes. Oh my goodness, that's great. I know, so I've done a lot of learning today. So, um, and I think we probably do need to do another episode basically on how to teach clinical reasoning at work Um, because it is such a huge area, isn't it? Yeah, there's there's lots of evidence now uh, Mm. about things that that work. Some really cool stuff that I'd be happy to share. Yeah, that I've been uh, practicing with. Yeah, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. 
So thank you so much to all the listeners out there um, listening to today's fantastic podcast. If you could rate, review and share the podcast with other people, that would be amazing. Um, a massive thank you to Nicola Cooper for joining me today. And I'm sure she'll be back soon. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Home of Medicine podcast, a podcast brought to you by the EFIM Academy in association with the European Federation of Internal Medicine, a leading organisation in internal medicine. Thanks for listening.